Um, so a lot of you have already seen the announcement that went out on Slack on Tuesday morning, but I just wanted to uh, take a little time, unpack a small portion of that. I don't want to reiterate the whole letter. Um, but over the last couple years, we've grown as a church body, and it's been wonderful. Um, we've been pleased to see the growth in relational depth and people being added to our church family and growing in spiritual maturity. And while we praise God for that growth, uh, at the same time, our pastors, Mike and Josh, have had challenges in their mutual working relationship uh, and through a, a years-long process with the elders uh, and pastors have determined it would be best for the church and the ministries of our pastors, Mike and Josh, to separate professionally. Uh, and as a part of that, Josh's home church in Columbus, Ohio, has called him, uh, and he has accepted a position there um, to be their, their senior pastor. Um, so this is, is heavy news that we have been um, working through as, as a church family and want to have time for questions to unpack and um, discuss more of this. And that time is tonight at 8 p.m. We want to be able to answer those questions in person, but also uh, give flexibility for families that need to be at home. Um, so we'll be in person here at 8 p.m. tonight, but also offer it um, live on Zoom for those that um, are down with, with kids, putting them down for bed. Um, so for that, uh, the format will be just a question and answer, and we ask that the questions be submitted beforehand. Uh, the letter that was shared on Slack has a link in it that you can go and submit questions beforehand. Um, no one is good at shooting from the hip, and um, we don't want to come off or portray something that is not true of um, our pastors or what's been true in this situation, so want to be able to um, process through and answer those questions to the best of our ability. Um, so, uh, as we come into this with mixed emotions and um, saddened by the result, we have a desire to celebrate Josh um, and as we, we send him well. So, a few opportunities coming up to do that um, is a photo book that we're going to put together with um, kind words, pictures, and memories. Um, Reese has offered his very professional services to do this uh, instead of us just clicking through Shutterfly. He is a professional photographer. Um, and saw him snapping away some hopefully great pictures at our men's retreat this weekend. Um, so send on Slack, text, tap him on the shoulder. Um, he's another 6'4", tall guy. You'll see him. Um, so give him any kind words that you want to send the fours with, what their ministry has meant to you, um, and how they've blessed us. Um, and we have been blessed by Josh's ministry and, again, have a desire to send him well, uh, and that would also be um, with our finances. The church is doing something separately. Um, maybe we'll talk about that tonight, but for this, I just want to present an uh, opportunity. This isn't a offering. It's not a part of, like, your uh, giving to the church, but if you have been blessed by Josh and want to bless him uh, accordingly as he sets up his family and moves to Columbus. Um, I'll be collecting money to send to him um, and his family. Last, uh, one of Redemption City's can't-nots, a throwback to Josh's sermon a couple weeks ago on um, just things that we, we can't not do. So one of Redemption City's can't-nots is gathering around food for fellowship. Um, so 
uh, we will be hosting, uh, Katie and I, at our house, a big open house celebration party, uh, two weekends on Sunday, um, go home, put kids down for a nap, and then come from three to seven, open house style, we'll have um, food served around five, um, but just a big party and time to celebrate um, the fours as they go, and then future we'll have some time to kind of pray over Josh in the service um, whenever we decide the last service to be. Um, so that's it for me. All right, well, I would jump up here real quick as well and uh, wanted to say, I'll hop over here so I'm in the center of the room here, but um, one of the things that initially, um, man, when Josh came on to our search committee two years ago, I initially, I told Jamie, I told the rest of the search team, I'm like, this guy has huge leadership potential. I see him stepping into a leadership position in the near future, and little did I know that he'd get an opportunity just uh, two years later to step into leadership at his home church in Columbus, Ohio. And so, yeah, Josh, I am really excited for you, very thankful uh, for you, and uh, the story God is writing in your life. I think, uh, yeah, this next chapter is going to be uh, full of exciting growth and potential, and I'm going to be rooting for you every step of the way on that. Uh, thankful for your contribution here at Redemption City Church. Uh, so grateful for you and your family, and we'll be praying for you guys, uh, for Camille and for Johnny and Ruby, Isla, the whole clan as they transition over. Just blessings on you guys as you step into this next adventure uh, together. But yeah, just want to express that thanks and uh, thankfulness for this time and season that we've been able to have and the opportunity you have to step out into the next big thing God has for you. So we'll be praying blessings on you guys in this transition every step of the way. The work? There we go. Uh, yeah, similarly, I've had uh, thoughts, you know, just like going back to the beginning and thinking about uh, getting coffee with Mike at Madcap uh, to talk about this position pre-COVID. Man, little did we know what was in store. Uh, but it was just uh, really beautiful to hear Mike describe how well you as a church family have cared for, cared for him and his family and um, just what that, you know, what that shows uh, about Mike and planning a church that uh, was... Uh, was now caring for him uh, in just a, a beautiful, uh, gracious, you know, kind way, and and uh, and it, it was it uh, it was not false advertising. We Camille and I and our our family have come in and just been so loved and blessed uh, to be a part of this uh, this church family. Feel feel your guys's uh, feel God's love through through your love and and how you've cared and and uh, in, in many ways just see our our time here as as a gift from God. Uh, it's been really really fun. Uh, to be a pastor here, to be your pastor, and um, so many encouraging, kind, gracious uh, experiences. I think in a, in a lot of ways, you know, we had a, a little bit of a, a rough ministry season uh, before we came here, and we, God has used uh, used this church uh, to to be just kind of part of the healing process and and uh, fall in love with uh, what the church can be all over again. And um, I've I've loved uh, the desire of of this church family uh, to to grow and to learn and be open to, to new ideas, and um, I just, as a pastor, had the incredible privilege of just being across the table uh, from a lot of you as you, as you share what, uh, what God's doing in your life, and that's just been an extravagant privilege. Um, 
I think the, the joy of uh, being a pastor here speaks to the faithful work of, of Mike uh, that he's done over the years uh, and, and um, uh, just the, the kind of uh, culture and community that he's sought to create here. And uh, through Mike and the elders, I feel like God has used this season here in, in, in my life just uh, as, as a pastor ministry-wise to really clarify my calling, refine what God wants me to give my life to in, in ministry. And um, it's stuff that I'll I'll, I'll take with me for you know for the rest of my life, and um, you know we're uh, it, it, bittersweet's been said at least once already. A lot of mixed emotions. We're we're super sad uh, to be to be leaving uh, the church family, and really love you guys, and have really cherished our time here. And uh, but you know we have um, we have a lot of hope in uh, in, in God's uh, promise to have His steadfast love and mercy follow us into the next season. And, uh, the you know the beautiful thing about what we believe to be true uh, in Scripture is that uh, there, you know there's no final goodbyes for uh, for followers of Jesus. But uh, what, you know whatever you guys can come visit or we'll be back. You know we love West Michigan. But you know, re- you know regardless of what we what we do in terms of seeing each other again, we know that one day we'll 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 all be worshiping King Jesus together face to face. And so we 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 take uh, great comfort in that. Thank you, and I'll invite Abby up for scripture reading for this morning. Good morning, Redemption City Church. My name is Mark. If you are new, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm a member here at the church. Uh, I've actually been a member here for a little more than two years. I've had a chance to meet, of course, many of you. Um, I think I've preached about a half a dozen times or so now. So I feel as though we have reached the point in our relationship publicly where I can get a little bit personal. Uh, So here goes. Uh, When I was a kid, I wasn't the type uh, who got sick very often. I wasn't the type who got injured very often, never broke a bone. But when I did get sick, when I did have an ailment of some kind, it tended to be fairly severe. So I can recall when I was seven or eight years old, I got the chicken box. Big deal. Everyone got the chicken in the box when they were my age back then. Uh, parents used to have pox parties, actually, where they would bring all the kids in the neighborhood together when one kid got chicken in the pox so that everyone could get inoculated because if you got chicken pox as a youngster, it wasn't nearly as severe if you got it as an oldster. So this wasn't that big of a deal. And my siblings and I all got chicken pox at the same time. And for my brother and my sister, it was fairly normal. It was just like having 20 to 25 mosquito bites all at once. Annoying, but manageable. In my case, it was quite a bit more severe. I had the pox everywhere. I had it on my face. I had it on my nose. I had it on my ears. I had it on my armpits. I could keep going down. I said we were going to get personal. I did have it behind my knees. I even had it on the bottoms of my feet. I was completely covered in chicken pox. I remember another time I had the flu. I had the flu so severe that I hallucinated that the walls of our living room were caving in on me, and I was screaming in utter terror, convinced that I was going to be trapped inside of our living room. Uh, Another one, I, I got a stiff neck at one point, and it was so stiff that I couldn't move my head in any direction for several days. And I remember my dad having to hold my head in perfect stillness as I walked gingerly just to be able to go to the bathroom over the course of those three days. All that to say, when I got sick, when I had an ailment as a kid, it was severe, 
And so it probably should not have been a surprise when, as a 20-year-old college student, I was diagnosed with cancer. All of a sudden, I had a 7-centimeter tumor, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, right in my abdomen. It was rather surprising, rather shocking to me at the time, but I remember my dad at that time reflecting that all of these strange and severe ailments that I had had throughout my childhood had actually, in his mind, foreshadowed that there might be something bigger, more sinister coming. He reflected to me that he'd always been afraid of that, always been nervous about that. Our, our text for today functions in sort of a similar way. It functions in terms of foreshadowing and foreshadowing something sinister, something big that's coming down the pike. It's a strange text that we find ourselves in here in Mark chapter 6. And Mark, the gospel writer, positions this story within his broader gospel for this specific function of foreshadowing where he means to go from here. So up to this point in Mark's gospel, as you've been following along as we're going through together as a church, Mark has been primarily concerned with identifying who Jesus is, that he is in fact the Christ. He's been concerned with identifying that Jesus is the Son of God. He's been focusing on the power and the authority with which Jesus goes about his work and ministry. But Mark is going to make a turn. He's going to make a turn right around the middle of his gospel. And for the second half of the gospel, he's going to concern himself primarily with what sort of Christ Jesus is. So the first half is establishing Jesus' identity, that he in fact is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the promised son of God who would come and usher in peace of some kind. In the second half of the gospel, he's going to articulate with more specificity just what type of Christ, just how Christ is going to yield, or wield rather, his authority to bring about his ends. And so this story that we get today sets up that turn. It prepares us for that turn. It foreshadows where it is that Mark's going to go for the second half of the gospel. And the story today is really a flashback sequence. Mark goes back in time to foreshadow where he's going to be going for the rest of the story. If you recall from last week, where we are in the story, Jesus had just sent out his disciples to begin doing the work of ministry that he had heretofore done on his own. Healing, proclaiming the kingdom, casting out demons... And the disciples have gone out into the work of the ministry and they have done just what Jesus was doing with the same kind of results, displaying a similar power and authority operating under his authority. And so this then sets us up for this flashback sequence. And Mark starts this flashback sequence by introducing the central character of it, by introducing us to a new character And we read this in verse 14 of chapter 6. King Herod heard of it. That is to say, he heard of what Jesus and his disciples were doing. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. 
Okay, Mark introduces us to this new character, Herod. Now, it's important to note that this is not the Herod that you might be familiar with from Mark's nativity story. That was Herod the Great, the famous Herod who attempted to kill baby Jesus. This is Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas. Herod the Great has since passed on, and his son has taken over rule of the region of Galilee. Herod the Great actually passed on different portions of his kingdom to different ones of his sons. And this particular Herod is ruling over the region of Galilee, which so happens to be the region where Jesus grew up and the region where Jesus began his ministry. And this Herod, being the ruler of that region, the region of Galilee, has of course heard of this sensation that is Jesus. And he's heard all the rumors. He's heard all the theories about who this Jesus is exactly. Some say he's John the baptizer, back from the dead. But others say, verse 15, he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. So you've got these competing theories all connected in some way to Jewish tradition, to Judaism. John the baptizer, many of you know, he was a Jewish prophet. He was actually Jesus' cousin. When he came onto the scene, he developed a baptism ministry or a baptism of cleansing where people could come be washed and have a sense of cleansing from their sins. Some people say perhaps this figure has risen from the dead and he's now manifesting in Galilee in some way. Others said, no, it's Elijah. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with Elijah, a prophet from 900 years earlier who performed miraculous deeds in his time, stood up against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and then never died. The scriptures record he was taken up into heaven. And the prophet Malachi actually predicts that Elijah will be sent back at some time, that he will return to prepare the day of the Lord. And so some are saying, perhaps this is Elijah. Okay, but Mark wants us to pay special attention to what Herod Antipas believes. What does this new Herod believe about who this figure is? And so he gives it to us in verse 16. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, that's John the baptizer, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Okay, so that's his theory. And he's fairly certain of it. This is so compelling because this Herod is the son of the man who rebuilt the Jewish temple. That's who his dad was. That's who Herod the Great was. Herod the Great took on the great task of rebuilding the Jewish temple. It was a 46-year project, and he rebuilt it so that the Jews, his people, could worship the way that they had worshipped prior to their exile in Babylon. Now, there is some debate as to whether Herod the Great's act of rebuilding the temple was an act of devotion, was it an act of true Jewish faith, or was it just a political maneuver? Well, you might be able to surmise by Herod the Great's determination to slaughter all of the baby boys under the age of two when Jesus was born in hopes of retaining his power, that he wasn't exactly faithful. He wasn't exactly a devout religious guy, more like a devout megalomaniac intent on retaining his power, right? He wanted no threats to his power whatsoever. 
And so thinking that his rebuilding of the temple was an act of true devotion is dubious at best. But his son, our Herod, the Herod Antipas of our story, appears to be a bit more complex than his old man, a little bit harder to figure out. We learn from this introduction here that he beheaded John the baptizer. Not great. But now we also learn that he believes that this man that he beheaded has risen from the dead and is manifesting as a Galilean wonder worker. In other words, he clearly believes in the supernatural power of John the baptizer's God. So why did he behead this man? Why would he kill John if he believed him to be a true prophet manifesting true power from the true God? Mark provokes that question and so sets the stage for our flashback sequence that will not only explain why Herod killed John, but also foreshadow what lies ahead in Mark's gospel. Cue Flashback sound effect, our image fades into a great banquet hall. Herod Antipas is there hosting a party, his own birthday party. In attendance are the military commanders and the noblemen and the male VIPs of Galilee have come to celebrate Herod Antipas. Curiously, Herod's wife... Herodias is not in attendance, partially because it's a mostly male affair, but also relations between Herod and Herodias had been a bit icy of late. Herodias used to be the wife of Herod's brother, Philip, another ruler of another region, another descendant of Herod the Great. But Herod had taken a liking to his brother's wife and had convinced her to leave Philip and come marry him. And Herod had also agreed to divorce his current wife so that the two of them could be together. All a lovely romantic story, no doubt, but there's just one big problem. The local prophet, the weird caterpillar and honey guy, John the baptizer, keeps calling out Herod for having broken God's law. And Herodias is furious. She's furious. Who is this prophet who keeps publicly scorning us, publicly scourging us for being unrighteous? Let's kill this guy. Herod's reaction to John is quite a bit more complex and gives us a little bit of insight into who this figure, Herod Antipas, is. We read starting in verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, that is, when he heard him accusing him of breaking God's law, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Okay, Herod is torn. He wants to keep his newly minted wife. And he's in charge. He can do whatever he wants with impunity. 
Yet, part of him knows that John is right and that he is playing with fire. So he arrests John, he throws him into prison, but he keeps him safe. He won't kill him. See, Herod is a double-minded man. He's a man who hasn't gone all in one way or the other. He doesn't live by conviction. He lives by fear. The default question that he asks himself on a day-to-day basis is never what's right. The default question that he asks himself is, what can I get away with? Or its close cousin, what will make me look good? So he's at his birthday party, and Herodias' daughter from her marriage to Philip comes into the party, maybe at the request of her mother. We don't know those details exactly. She comes in and puts on an erotic dance for the party guests, and she's a big hit. They all love it. And so Herod, eager to capitalize on some status for himself, tells her, you can have anything you want, and he uses this ancient kingly idiom, even up to half of my kingdom. You'll hear a lot of ancient kings in the scriptures make a comment similar to this. And Herodias' daughter, this young woman, whose name is Salome, we know from Josephus, the Jewish historian, name meaning peace, she doesn't bring any peace in this situation. She's not sure what to do, so she goes and asks her mother, Herodias, what should I demand from the king? And you can guess what Herodias says, go get me John's head. Salome dutifully goes back to the party. She asks for just that. And we read in verse 26, Herod was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, He did not want to break his word to her. Herod doesn't want to kill John. He knows that John is a good man. He fears John. He knows that the power of God is on John, but he knows even more than that, that to refuse him, refuse this request rather, at this point will cost him in the eyes of his guests. And so he cuts off the head of a righteous man to avoid taking any hit to his ego. He delivers the head to Salome, and she gives the head to Herodias. And Mark notes as he closes this scene, when John's disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So ends the flashback sequence, and the foreshadowing groundwork is laid. As I mentioned, Mark intends to make a significant turn coming up very soon in his gospel account. He spent the whole first half establishing Jesus' identity, that he's the Christ, that he's the Son of God, he's filled with authority and power. But he'll spend the second half of the gospel explaining just how this Christ will manifest, just how he will wield that power, just what kind of Christ he is. Now, Jesus' disciples, they're just like everybody else. They're just normal men. And so they envision that the portrait of Christ that will emerge will be one of military victory. 
they imagine that Christ will manifest his power, wield his power in pushing back the oppression of the Roman Empire and Rome's vice kings and rulers, such as Herod Antipas. They imagine that Christ will bring death to bear on all of their enemies. But this Christ doesn't plan to bring death to anyone. In fact, his story will follow in the way of John the baptizer. Mark has now set us up to take us into that reality. When I first heard that I had cancer, back to me, um, I just wanted to pretend that it wasn't true. I was 20 years old. I'd only been a Christian for about six months at the time. And so I still had my old lifestyle readily available to me. I still could get all the booze that I wanted with my happily created fake ID. I still could get all the comfort that I thought I needed from my recently broken off relationship with an old girlfriend. It was easy to pretend that I wasn't sick for a while. But as the chemotherapy began to break down my body, that got harder and harder. So at first, the nausea, the effects of the chemotherapy would last for 10 to 12 hours. But as the treatments progressed, that began to expand to one day and then two days and then three days. And I have a vivid memory of sitting in my friend's apartment after maybe two or three treatments And I was doing a crossword puzzle at his kitchen table. And I was leaned over. I had my head leaned on my hand. And when I pulled up, I pulled out a giant clump of my hair. And it became very difficult after that to pretend that I wasn't sick. My friend kindly shaved my head that night. And then when the treatment seemed to stop working... And the cancer seemed to stop shrinking. It just wouldn't leave. I lost all of my ability to pretend. And I started to simply believe that I was going to die. And that was a terrible, terrible thought. Perhaps some of you in this room have had that thought, that your death is imminent. It was like fear and horror and anger and sadness all mixed into one. Right? I was sad that I was going to miss out on so many things because I was just 20 years old. And I wanted to write for newspapers and coach sports and take a girl on so many dates until she had to say the big yes and start a family and smoke brisket and maybe a couple of cigars. And I was sad that I was going to miss out on all of those things. I was also terrified of ceasing to exist. The new Christian, there wasn't a lot of foundation in me. And for all I knew, this would be the end of my being. And that was very scary to me. And I was angry because it seemed very unfair that I would become a Christian And just a few months later, I would have this life-threatening disease. Death is our enemy. 
All of creation knows that. All of creation knows that death is something to be resisted. Death is something to be fought. Death is something that we team up together as societies, as humanity, to hold at bay for as long as possible. That's the most natural thing. That's what animals do. That's what all of creation does. We resist and we fight death. But Mark is setting us up to watch a man do just the opposite. John the baptizer was born into the world to prepare the way for Jesus. To prepare a path that not many walk in. Not many are willing to walk in. And everything John did prepared that path. Both John and Jesus experienced miraculous yet humble births. They both became prophets when they came of age. John developed a ministry of baptism, and Jesus submitted and received that baptism. And now here, John is despised for calling out the hypocrisy of those in power. That's what gets John in trouble. Herodias, interesting to note, Herodias was actually the granddaughter of Herod the Great, which makes her the niece of both of her husbands, Philip and Herod Gross. But it also places her in the line of Judaism's leadership. She's a part of the Jewish leadership. Her grandfather rebuilt the temple. And yet, she's an adulteress. She's unfaithful to the God of her lineage. And she demands that a ruler in the Roman Empire do her dirty work. Kill John. Does that at all sound familiar? It will be the Jewish leadership, whom Jesus calls adulteress for their hypocrisy, who take him before Pontius Pilate, another ruler in the Roman Empire, and demand that he do their dirty work. Like Herod, Pilate will resist because he finds no fault in Jesus. In fact, Pilate will send Jesus before this very same Herod. Talk about preparing the way. And Herod, like Pilate, will find no fault in Jesus and send him back to Pilate. And Pilate will order Jesus executed, never mind that he sees no reason to do it. The adulterous leaders will force his hand. In Mark's account of John's death, he makes no record of any objection. There's no record in Mark's account of John getting a chance to defend himself or speak up for himself. John goes to his death silently, though he is innocent of any crime. Jesus, likewise, will offer no defense for himself, like a lamb to the slaughter. What kind of Christ is this? Christs don't go to their grave silently. Christs save us from the grave. 
That's what it means to be a Christ. It's to be a savior. Someone who partners with us, brings their power and authority onto our team to help us in this universal struggle to push back the grave, to resist death, to win. But Jesus, like John, not only goes to his execution without a fight, he also puts up no fight against these slanderous attempts that are made to destroy his reputation. He gives up his body freely, and he gives up his good name freely. I want you to see those two things are connected. You've heard of character assassination. We use that term character assassination because to be slandered is a kind of death. When your name is dragged through the mud, you are diminished, you are devalued, you are even sometimes destroyed. Look how different, notice how different Jesus is from Herod in this regard. Herod, like his father before him, will do anything to hold on to his status. He'll do anything to hold on to his reputation, to not take an ego hit, to hold on to his life, to be seen as important, powerful, a good king. And because of this, he can't live with conviction. He lives in perpetual fear of what he might lose. It would cost him too much to live with conviction. Jesus, by contrast, takes every step of his life in accord with his conviction and out of love. Love for his father, love for his fellow man, love for you, love for me. He can pour himself out because he's not concerned with preserving life or his name. He's not concerned with how low his reputation goes. He's not afraid of what can be taken from him. Which path are you on? Who is your Christ? Are you more prone to follow Herod? To self-protect? To manage your image? Or do you follow Jesus? Do you let conviction and love lead you no matter the cost? There's a social philosopher, Jonathan Haidt. He wrote a book recently, a very illuminating book called The Righteous Mind. Commend it to you. He says this, Our moral thinking is much more like a politician searching for votes than a scientist searching for truth. What Haidt is saying, actually the thesis of the whole book, is that we care far more about our image, about how we're perceived, than we do about whether we are truly good. We actually care very little about whether we are truly good. We spend an enormous amount of mental energy concocting justifications for our actions so that we can prove that we are good to other people, never mind whether we actually are. We want to justify our actions, our thoughts, our words. We have an insatiable need to prove that we are in the right. We have very little need to actually be in the right. It doesn't actually really concern us. 
We just need to be able to prove it to ourselves and others. We need everyone to think that we're good. We crave public vindication. When people think ill of you, when a lot of people think ill of you, when your public image spirals out of control, that is a death. And we crave the opportunity to be publicly vindicated. For someone to stand up and say, no, that's not true. That's not right. It's one of our deepest psychological needs. And it's not evil. Not necessarily. The question is, where will you find that vindication? Which Christ will you follow? Mark has a hard sell for us. The whole second half of his gospel will depict the downward journey of Jesus to a cross. And he'll show us disciple after disciple, abandoning ship, bailing along the way, jumping off this path. It's too hard. Judas fighting to protect his bank account. Peter fighting to preserve his reputation and his life. The way prepared by John and walked by Jesus is a hard way. It's hard even for Jesus. Luke records this, another gospel. In chapter 12, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus says, the baptism I received from John, that was merely foreshadowing again of my ultimate baptism, my final baptism. I went underwater, but now I'll be going underground. Jesus says, I'm greatly distressed by this. That's such a comfort to me. To know that Jesus was also greatly distressed by taking this path toward the grave, by not resisting it, by going willingly. When the doctor told me that the chemotherapy wasn't working anymore and that I was going to need a bone marrow transplant, I remember that moment quite vividly. I may have shared it with some of you. I think I have. It was like that little doctor's office just started to spin. I was completely thrown off my equilibrium. I ran out of the doctor's office, ran down the hall, locked myself in a hospital bathroom, and just wept. But as hard as that moment was, as hard as it was to come face-to-face with this prescription of a bone marrow transplant and the very low odds of success that the doctor gave... It was actually a gift. It turned out to be a great gift because it drove me to the same exact place that it drove Jesus. Coming face to face with imminent death, it drove me to the Father. After hearing that I was going to need that bone marrow transplant, just how low the odds were, I went back to church. I hadn't been going to church throughout my time receiving chemotherapy. I was just trying to hide, trying to pretend it would all go away. But this prescription cut through all of that. And that morning in church that I went back, at the end of the service, the pastor invited people down to the front to be prayed for, and there was a large church and a lot of people coming down and a dozen or more people up front to pray over people, and there was music playing, and there wasn't an opportunity to even have a conversation 
with the person who would pray for you. And so a man just received me. He put his hand right on my abdomen, and he began to pray for me. And I had identified as a Christian at this point for over a year, but that was the first experience of faith that I can recall. Because I was filled for the first time with trust of who God is and who he is to me. And I knew I am in my father's hand. My life is not my own. So it's not mine to protect. It's not my story to tell. My life belongs to him and so it's his to spend Do you know how liberating that is? I walked out of that church service still convinced that I was likely nearing the end as an almost 21-year-old, but confident that wherever I went, whether it was in this life or the next, God was holding me in his hand. The weight of fear, the slavery of fear to death was lifted. That's the great mystery that Jesus clung to in his distress. It's the truth that sustained him when he wept in the garden, when he was slandered before Pilate, and when he hung on a cross. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, you hold me, no matter where this evil may take me. John foreshadowed the way of Jesus, and like John, Jesus' disciples took his body after he had died, and they laid it in a tomb. But then came the morning that sealed the promise. His buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared, the grave has no claim on me. John prepared the way for Jesus And Jesus now has prepared the way for us. He's gone down into the death that we fear. He suffered the slander that we endure. And he has swallowed it all up into himself. As the writer of Hebrews says, he partook of our human flesh to overcome its power and set us free from the slavery of fearing it. Jesus participated in the flesh and blood reality of what it means to live in a fallen and broken world. And he went into that brokenness so that we could be set free from the slavery of fearing it. We don't have to fear death. And because of that, we're free to truly live. Seek no vindication apart from Christ. You have nothing to defend and nothing to To lose. The way of resurrection is prepared for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the scripture that lead us into new ways of thinking and believing and trusting you. Thank you that you reveal to us these things that we could never see on our own. These things that we couldn't know apart from your grace and your mercy. We thank you for Jesus.
and the revelation that he is, the gift that he is, the life that he lived, the death that he died, and the resurrection life that he now gives us. Lord, I pray for each one of us as we face the cycle of death and resurrection in our own life, preparing for the final death and resurrection that we will all walk through. Or would you fill us with faith that we'd be able to pour out our lives, not seeking to defend them, not seeking to defend ourselves or uphold our reputations, but being willing always to be governed by your spirit, asking the question, who would you have me love? And always knowing that we can trust you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have the opportunity, church, to respond to...